0: In the late 1990s, I was with Luis Palau in a rural section of England called the East Midlands. Jose's been over there as well. And one night we were in a little town called Mansfield, which is right in the middle of Sherwood Forest. Yes, that place of legendary Robin Hood fame. And we were there for a couple of nights, uh, sharing the good news and I was in charge of leading worship, and we would have guest singers every night, and this night we had an older guy there. For those of you who are older here tonight, part of the 1960s British invasion band Herman's Hermits. And so he was sharing his testimony, how his life had been radically changed by Jesus. He fell into drug addiction, and without telling you his whole story, literally one night he lived in a second story apartment, they call it a flat over there, he was so out of it on drugs, he literally fell through a plate glass window down to the ground, collapsed. Somebody found him there and he woke up in a hospital. But just prior to that, someone was talking to him about Jesus. And so in the hospital, he said, God, you have my attention. And he was radically changed. He met Jesus. This night he was singing about this transformation. Tears were coming down his eyes and he sang several songs that night and shared in between. And one song he sang stuck with me, not because it was the greatest song ever, not because it was so eloquent, but because it was true But more than that, because the man singing knew the person he was singing about. But the song was straight from 1 Corinthians 13. And it was called Love is the Key. And the chorus just went like this. Love is the key. Love is the key. Though I speak with tongues of angels, love is the key. Now he sang it better than that. But he sang it over and over, and it just impacted me that night, so much so that ever since then, this was like 1999, on my cell phone screensaver, it says love is the key. I didn't know how to get it on there, but my daughter Rebecca, she's smart. She got it on there. And it's still there. And every time I look at my phone, there it is. Love is the key. Reminding me because I know I have a long, long, long way to go before I begin to love the way we just read about. This guy's voice wasn't what it used to be, but he knew the one he was singing about. He had it down. His name was John Gone. He had it right down. He had it down because love is the key to just about everything. Here's what Jesus said in John 13 to his followers. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And that's important. Love one another, great, I'll love one another. He said, as I have loved you. That's important. That you also love one another. And here's what he said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you follow me if you have love for one another. Love is the key to living as a follower of Jesus. It's the key to a happy marriage. It's the key to being a good mother, a father, you name it, on and on it goes. A certain kind of love, that is, the kind that we just read about. And it's also the key to a healthy and thriving sunset of Jesus' church. People think of today's text as simply a beautiful poem to be read at weddings. It is that. I read it at weddings, I mean, what bride and what groom on their wedding day don't want to be loved like that? Usually they're thinking, yes, I want to receive that kind of love, more than they're thinking, I want to give that kind of love. But of course it's great to be read at a wedding. But this chapter 13 sits between two other chapters in the book or letter of 1 Corinthians. I'm brilliant, I know, between chapters 12 and 14. And, And here's the deal about that. Chapter 12, uh, a few years ago we went through 1 Corinthians 13. Paul talks about how we're one body in Christ. In fact, I'm going to read, if you still have your Bible open, I'm going to read just a couple of verses with you from chapter 12. He's talking all about how we are the body of Christ, and some of us, Jesus is the head, we're his legs, his arms, his ligaments, his feet, etc. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27 He says, You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all pro- pro- apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healings, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Rhetorical questions, of course. The answer is no, 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 no. But eagerly desire the greater gifts. And if your Bible is open, look at the last phrase of chapter 12. And now I will show you a still more excellent way. It says greater than all of that, I'm going to show you something better, something more excellent. In fact, the most excellent way. What what is the way? It's the way of love. And then he He talks about what we just read. And then in chapter 14, we're not gonna go there right now, but he jumps right back in and it says, follow or pursue the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. So sandwiched between these two chapters is talking about being the family of God and the arms and the legs and the feet and then following this way and loving one another and letting spiritual gifts be exercised. Right in the middle, it's like Paul digresses for a moment and there's what we call chapter 13. He makes a digression. He says, you know what? All the stuff about spiritual gifts, all the stuff about the family of God, hey, the most important thing is that you live with each other, that you love each other, and that you treat each other like this because love is the key, love is the engine that powers everything God wants to do. Now, I wanna unpack this text, we're gonna move kinda of fast tonight because there's a lot here. We'll camp out in some places and move quickly in others, but you need to understand something really important before we walk through it. When we as Americans think of love, we think of it as a feeling, because Hollywood, romance movies, etc. it all talks about falling in what? And then people say they fall out of love. People get divorced because they say, I just don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore. I was in love and I fell out of love. It's a feeling. And I like what my friend Emerson Egret says who wrote the book Love and Respect. He says, are you going to follow Hollywood or God's holy word? Because this word tells us what love really is. In English, we have only one word for love. It is. Love, and we use it for I love my wife and I love tacos, or whatever. As many of you know, the Greeks had multiple words for love. Phileo, which is friendship love, brotherly love, where we get the city of Philadelphia. Eros, sexual love. Storge, another Greek word, the kind of love you have for your dog. And I love my dog. I miss him tonight, actually I do. My wife's gone and my dog's my next best companion anyway. But Paul uses none of these words here. He uses a Greek word, agape. And this word describes the way God loves. This is love that comes from God and is the very nature of God. And think with me for one second here. God is love, the scriptures say. Jesus is God. Therefore, we could actually put his name in this entire text Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, etc. And I really want to focus on him tonight. Here's a definition of agape love. There are many. Here's one that I like to use. We'll throw it up on the screen. What is this love like? It's love that gives, expecting nothing in return. Love that gives, expecting nothing in return. This is sacrificial, extravagant love cross life kind of love there's got to be a death to self before god's spirit can produce this kind of love in you in the first three verses that we read a moment ago paul talks about the preeminence or the ultimate importance of this kind of love look with me again back at verse one he says if i speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love i'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal He's saying here, it doesn't matter how eloquent I am if I'm not filled with love, I'm just a noisy gong. Now, I used to, I'm a percussionist and I played in high school in the orchestra. One year I played trumpet, the next year I got to play in the percussion section, we had a gong. Have you ever seen a gong? They're really big. And usually, I got to play one a couple times. And basically it's kind of boring because you count for the whole song about 197 measures of rest, one, two, three, four. But at the end, your chance comes,
1: boom,
0: and a gong, if you hit it hard, it can drown out an entire orchestra. And just as someone who's not filled with love can drown out all the joy in a room and suck out all the compassion or all the things that are there, it can just be a noisy mess. I'm also a drummer. If I went over there and slapped a cymbal one time, you wouldn't mind it, but if I started just slamming it and slamming it and slamming it, pretty soon you would shoot me or throw me off the stage because it would irritate you. He's saying here, if I'm not filled with love, I'm just making a whole bunch of noise. Verse two, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Paul says here, it doesn't matter how wise or how gifted I am, if I don't possess love in abundance, I am nothing, no thing. Verse three, if I give all my possessions to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. So it doesn't matter how eloquent I am, it doesn't matter how wise I am. Here, it doesn't matter how sacrificial I am, how much I serve, how hard I work, how much I lay down my life for others. I could support every orphanage in existence, I could travel the world helping people until I collapse in exhaustion. But if my motives aren't pure, if my life doesn't exude love, if I don't bleed drops of love, verse 3 says, I gain nothing. I'm a worthless loser, a big fat zero. This is how important love is to God. We're talking about loveology. It's important to God. Agape love is preeminent to him. It's the most important thing in his eyes and on his heart. He's not impressed with eloquence, giftedness, or sacrificialness. He's not impressed, but he is blessed and refreshed when he sees us love each other as Jesus has loved us. Like any good father, he doesn't just want his kids to not fight and get along, hey, quit. Good hitting your sister, okay. No, he wants, he wants his kids to love each other. It just blesses every, there's no greater joy as a mom or a dad when you see your kids do something tender and kind for each other. It's like, let's take a picture of that. It was amazing. Because you want them not just to get along, you want them to love each other. The greatest need every one of us has here tonight, the greatest need in your heart is not to become a millionaire or finally get to Hawaii or whatever, it's, it's to be loved with this kind of love, for somebody to love you, to overlook your faults. We all wanna be loved like this. And it is the sign, by the way, of whether or not you truly belong to Jesus. Let me give you two more scriptures, we'll throw them on the screen, 1 John 3. says, we know that we have passed out of death into life, here's why, because we love the brethren. The word their love is agape, say agape with me, agape. Because we agape, the brothers and sisters in the church. That's how we know we belong to Jesus, because we love them in this way. Another one, 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love, agape, one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If love is the key to everything, as John Gon sang in England, then and it's this kind of love, we better understand what it looks like, all right? Because we're commanded to love one another the way Jesus loved us. So I wanna walk through this text because God gives us his description of love. One last thing before we just run through the next verses together. And it's very, very important. It's something that I did not discover after for many years, even as I'd read this passage over and over and over again, and read it at weddings, et cetera, I didn't realize till I actually went to study it something very important. These words appear in English to be adjectives when in fact in the original lang- language they're actually verbs. You say, why is that important? Are there any English teachers here? I wasn't very good at English, but verbs are what? Action words. Adjectives describe things, verbs are action words. This kind of love isn't some goose bumpy feeling that you fall in and out of. There's no feeling language here. Agape isn't something you feel, it's something you do. And if you're taking notes tonight, just love is is only love when it acts. The Bible actually says God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross. He acted, he demonstrated, he showed us through his sacrificial death. This is the so, so opposite everything we hear and see, every movie, every advertisement. You need to pay attention because you need to read it 10 times and meditate on it just to get it. Now, in verses four through seven, Paul lists eight things that love is and seven, seven things love is not. And I want to look at them. We're going to camp out on a few and do some others really fast. There are 15 Greek verbs here. Um, and Paul uses them to describe what love is and what it isn't. The first two are positive. And if you're taking notes, write these things down. And, and I'm praying that all of us tonight, at least one or two of these, you know, that's me. That's something I need to go before the Lord. And that's something that is definitely not in my heart right now, but I want it to be. Or it's in my heart right now, and I want it gone through the power of the Holy Spirit. The first one is love is patient. Remember, these are verbs. Therefore, love is being, what? Patient. And this word, by the way, doesn't so much deal with patience with circumstances. It's talking about patience with people, which is much harder. The Greek word makrothameo means to be long-tempered. I like the old King James translation, love suffereth long, love suffers long. Instead of having a short fuse or a short temper, the person who is patient is long-suffering. And agape love, God's love, is long-suffering. God is one who suffers long. When, When you are being patient in your love towards someone, when you allow God's spirit to produce this agape love in you, as you abide in Jesus, you will be able to have the ability, through his power, to be wronged again and again, and have the power to retaliate, and actually never even think about it. You say, that's impossible. Well, there's one who actually lived that way. His name is Jesus. And if you know him, he lives in you. And as you draw upon his power, that can be true of your life. This word was unique to Christianity. The Greeks thought it was a virtue to tell someone off, and so people started following Jesus and began to live this way, and it was radical. Because back then, hey, you, 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 you just tell somebody what you think of them. Just tell them off. And, and, and God's way is, of course, not that way. As followers of Jesus, we're to be characterized by this kind of long-suffering love. We aren't to t- retaliate against each other. We're to be patient, long-suffering with each other. By the way, Proverbs 16, my wife and I teach this when we teach our conference on parenting. Parents, you need to teach your kids how to live in this way because he who is slow to anger, it says in Proverbs 16, 32, is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures the city. This is a beautiful quality. It's a a character quality that can be produced by God's spirit. Love never says, agape love never says, I've had enough, I'm through with you, I'm out of here. It suffers long. It suffers indefinitely because love is patient. Number two, love is kind. These are verbs, so love is being what? That's it. Stay awake. Love is being kind. Now, when I hear the word kind, I love studying the Bible because you just learn stuff you didn't know. I think of kind as, oh, that person is so nice. They're so, she's so sweet. They're so kind. When you actually think about why do you think somebody is kind, it's because they actually did something for you. So here's a definition of kindness that comes straight out of the root word, root word Greek word here translated kindness, doing something useful for another person. That's what it is. Kindness is the flip side of patience. If you think of a coin, patience is on one side and kindness is on the other. While patience endures the injuries of others without retaliation, kindness Pays them back with good deeds. And that's what Jesus has done for us. While we were yet sinners, he was patient with us, and then he turned around and forgave us. He paid us back with, good, with the best deed of all by giving his life for us. We tend to think of kindness as a nice attitude. God says it's a useful act. Jesus is the perfect example. In Acts, it says, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were possessed by the devil. In Matthew 11, by the way, a lot of you know this passage where Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word easy there is the same Greek word translated kind here, which is interesting. Jesus is saying, come to me, follow me. I'll express my kindness to you. I'll do useful things for you. I'm reading through Acts right now. When I hit chapter nine, I read the story about Tabitha, who whom Peter raises from the dead. And here's a description of her: she was abounding in deeds of kindness. You remember, she died, and all the women were weeping and crying, and they were holding all these clothes that she was a seamstress, and she'd made all these beautiful clothes for all these women. <laughs> She's died. I'm like, oh, she made this for me, you know? And, and they loved her because of what she had done for them. She just was a seamstress who, who, with love in her heart, had made these beautiful clothes for her. And then, of course, she's raised from the dead. That would have been wild. Exciting. Okay, good. Yeah, would you sew this for me, please? <laughs> Whatever. I don't know how quickly they asked that, but... Being kind to someone should include, by the way, speaking kindly to them. It breaks my heart how many homes are ruined by yelling... Harsh anger, unkind words. It says of Jesus in Luke chapter four that people were amazed at the gracious words which fell from his lips. That's why people wanted to be around him because they wanted to be around him because he was so gracious and so loving and so kind. And he said, take my yoke upon you. That's not how I speak all the time. Ask my wife. <laughs> I've noticed that my speech becomes harsh when my heart becomes hard hard. And then I become short with people. And it usually starts with the people I love the most, the people I live with. Those are the people that know you the best after God himself. Jesus is never like me. I want to be more like him. It says in Proverbs 16, I love the book of Proverbs, pleasant words are like honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. One of the most useful things you and I can do for people this coming week is just just to speak Kindly to them. People get beat up, cut down, beaten down. Do something useful for them. Just use a kind word to lift up their soul. Let's move on. Next, Paul gives a long list of things that love is not. So, love is being patient. Love is being kind. Now, here's a list of things it is not. Next, he says, Love does not envy. The New American Standard says it's not jealous. Same word here, translated envy or jealous, the same Greek word. Love is not being. Jealous. Now there are two kinds of envy if you're taking notes. The first kind is relatively mild, it isn't too damaging. If we repent of it quickly, it's damaging. The second is downright you know, rotten, stinking jealousy. The first one I'm gonna call superficial envy. And this is basically, I want what you have. And this, this can be something simple, you know? How come he got that job? How come he got that promotion? How come she got the BMW or whatever? You know, those of you who are parents, you see this in your kids all the time. I remember when our kids were little, you know, 1986, we bought our first minivan. I wanted to get as manly of a one as I could, so I got an Astro minivan, at least a Chevrolet, you know. And it's just just a Chevy truck. It's just got a mini, you know, a, a van body on it, but it's really a truck. Anyway. You know, minivans, is like two, this one had two, two uh, um, captain seats and then two bench seats. Well, we had three kids, and so two kids got on one and one kid got on the other. And the argument was, the one that got the, the seat by himself was the oldest, John Mark. They would just say, how come he always gets a seat to himself? Like, because he's the oldest, which is not what they want to hear if you're not the oldest. And so this would go on and on, and I, I started to think, okay, here's how it works in our family. If you ask for the, the seat, then you get bumped from it. The person that doesn't ask for it's going to get it. Anyway, this went on and on for many years. We, we waited. Six years later, we solved the problem. We had a fourth kid. And then <laughs> nobody got their seat to themselves. So that's how we solved it. But anyway, this kind of jealousy or envy, I want what you have, isn't pretty. It's ugly. But it, it, if you repent of it quick, it maybe it's not going to be that damaging. I, I see this raise its own ugly head in my own life. I gotta be careful how I tell this because I don't want you to know who the person is. But somebody that's pretty, pretty close to me um, that I had the privilege of leading to the Lord. This was a long time ago. And went to church for like a year and started growing, and then just completely stopped going to church and isn't walking with the Lord. And, and then out of the blue, somebody left this person $700,000 out of their inheritance in their estate. And I was thinking, Lord, what about me? I serve you. I'm walking with you. I I give him tithes and offerings, you know? You know what that is? That's envy. Like, I want what he got. (laughs) I want the $700,000. That's ugly. Very ugly. But I saw it raise its ugly head in my heart. You see, love, agape, never asks why another is exalted or blessed. Because agape love is never envious. Love does not envy Now this first kind of envy or jealousy is is I want what you have. The second kind is more deadly, and it's this, what I'm gonna call deep-rooted envy. I wish you didn't have it. If I can't have 700 grand, I don't want you to have it either. This is where it gets really, really, really ugly. The root word here actually means to boil. This is the kind of envy and resentment, pure and simple. It's an inner seething when someone gets the job you think you deserve, or the promotion, or the glory that you wanted. I can't have it, so I don't want you to have it either, and I'm bitter that you got it. This, ca- this kind of envy or jealousy can even lead to murder. It was, it was deep-rooted jealousy on the part of the religious leaders that actually delivered Jesus up to be crucified, did you know that? Let me read it to you, Matthew 27, 18. For he, Pilate, knew that because of envy, they had delivered him up. It was this sin that led them to deliver Jesus up to be crucified. The process of envy begins with coveting. You begin to lust after something or someone, then you become jealous that you can't have it or him or her, and then you begin to boil over, which is why the Bible says thou shalt not covet. Love does not envy You see it raising its ugly head in your life, cut it off quickly, repent of it, deal with it, and realize that's not God's spirit filling you. It's the flesh, and the flesh is not a pretty sight. Let's move on. Number four, the next thing love is not. Love does not boast. Some of your Bibles say love does not brag. The meaning of this Greek word is a windbag. (laughs) Love is not a windbag. Maybe you've heard somebody say, what a windbag? (laughs) The guy just blowing steam, saying how great he is. Agape love is not a windbag. It doesn't boast. Boasting is really a form of pride. It might even come from insecurity, but it's still pride. That's why Proverbs 27 two says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Make sure you aren't always the topic of your own conversations. And I'm preaching to myself as one who talks a lot and loves to talk to my wife about me. Make sure you're not always at the center of every conversation. One of our pastors downtown, Gerald, he's our lead, lead pastor downtown. Um, he's married to his wife, Jenny. And I, I ran into somebody who's kinda new to downtown and I talked to him one time and I said, have you gotten to know Gerald? <laughs> Here's what they said. I can't find out anything about him because they won't stop asking about me. <laughs> I thought, what a testimony to the kind of man Gerald is and the kind of wife Jenny is. I'm trying to get to know him, but every time I'm around him, he just wants to know how I am and what's going on in my life and how he can serve me and how he can bless me. That's that's the opposite of boasting or bragging. If you want to boast, by the way, boast of how great God is. Psalm 34 says, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord and boast about how great Jesus is. Paul said in Galatians 6, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ who was delivered up for me. Let's move on. Next, love is not proud. Some of your Bibles say arrogant. Love is not arrogant. The Greek word here means to puff up. It comes from "fusa," a bellows. Metaphorically, to be arrogant is, is to be puffed up or inflated with pride. Agape love is not arrogant. So what's the difference between bragging and arrogance? Well, bragging is the verbalizing, the the hot air, the speech of pride, but arrogance is the hard attitude of pride. I don't need you, I'm better than you, I can do without you, thank you very much. When I find myself bragging, it's because I've already sinned by becoming arrogant in my heart. Only you can make yourself arrogant, because Jesus is not. Agape love is not arrogant. Let's move on, number six, love is not rude. New American Standard says, does not act unbecomingly. This is an interesting one. This word rude, in Greek, is schema, where we get schematic. It means what is not according to due form. In other words, when someone is rude, it can include anything from disgraceful, indecent, inconsiderate, ungracious, impolite, Bad mannered. You get the idea. The antithesis or the antonym being considerate, courteous, polite, gracious, etc. In short, rudeness is simply to treat someone in the wrong way, not according to form, not the proper way to treat another person. We're talking about etiquette here. Love is not rude. It's not without shape. It doesn't let it all hang out. It doesn't say, "Look, I'm just telling you how it is, man. You offended me." No, you're not. You're not telling it how it is. You're being rude. <laughs> Because love is not, I mean, we're very good at renaming sin, you know? Well, he has some issues. <laughs> no, they're not issues. <laughs> that, that's actually the sin of anger <laughs> or the sin of rudeness or whatever it, it might be. Just telling you how it is. No, you're being rude. We all know people who are rude, churches can be rude. Have you ever visited a church where you thought, man, I think they do not want me here? And you never came back because it was kind of, oh, who's that person over there? Man, I pray that never happens at at our church. Agape love is never rude as considerate. Let's move on, number seven. Love is not self-seeking. It doesn't seek its own. Literally in Greek, it is not seeking the things of itself. The biggest idol of all is not American idol. (laughs) It is self. The problem is, apart from a fresh filling of God's spirit, we are selfish. God's love isn't like that. Jesus isn't like that. Romans 15, verse three says, for even Christ did not please himself. Instead, it says in Philippians, he emptied himself. Not of his deity, (laughs) of his privileges. He laid down his life to serve and to give. He didn't please himself. Selfishness, by the way, is what destroys marriages. Takes two people to make a marriage work, but only one to break it up. The selfish one. We think if we get our way, we'll be happy, but actually it leads often to misery. Agape love, God's love, isn't selfish. Let's keep going. Love is not easily angered. Another way of translating that, it is not provoked. The NIV says easily angered. The word easily is not in the original text. It's literally love is not provoked or love is not angered, period. Period easily kind of weakens the point it's there for a reason. I'm not a Greek scholar, but love is not provoked, period. But I do love J.B. Phillips' translation, love is not touchy. The word provoke in Greek, it means to sharpen. Love isn't sharp. It isn't like the point of a knife stabbing someone in the back. God's love isn't like that. It isn't touchy. It isn't ready to pounce. It isn't ready to say, you offended me. Instead, it's quick to say, will you please forgive me? Next, love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, I love this one too. I just love the Bible, sorry. Greek, word here, logizomai, it's an, it's an accounting term. It means, if you're taking notes, to keep a mathematical calculation. If you're an accountant here, like my brothers and my father was, my father's with the Lord, but it means to credit or place into someone's account. So my brothers both for a long time had their own accounting business in the Bay Area, San Jose Bookkeeping Bookkeeping Company. My dad kind of retired early. started working with them part-time and I wanted him to rename it Comer, Comer, and Comer because it just sounded cool, but they didn't do it. It was just San Jose Bookkeeping Company. The coolest thing they got was three different lights plays. You know, SJ Bookkeeping 1, SJ, that was pretty cool. Anyway, but I watched them because they did my taxes for years. My brother still does my taxes and his job is to get it right. Every single jot and tittle, every single dollar, every single penny, everything has to be perfect. Everything, every debit, every credit has to be right there. They have to keep track of everything. When it comes to loving people, what's this mean here? Agape love doesn't keep a ledger of all the wrongs committed by another person. It doesn't do that. Remember Peter? In Matthew 18, he said to Jesus, Lord, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? Seven? And what did Jesus say? 70 times seven, Peter. Now Peter probably says 70 times seven is a four hundred. Peter said, that that's a lot. I mean, I, I'm going to lose count. And Jesus was saying, that's the point. Love doesn't keep track. It doesn't say you offended me. That's the fifth time you did that to me. I told you if you do that again on number six, you're toast. Love doesn't do that. This word, by the way, logizomai, is the same word used in the New Testament to describe the pardoning act of God where he's chosen to pardon us of every wrong deed, every single sin, even the ones we haven't committed yet, and not hold them against us. God will never say, I'm getting sick of that Phil Comer. I'm gonna start keeping track of every single sin he commits and write it down on my ledger, and in the end, it is over for him, which would be true if I hadn't met Jesus as my savior. I would stand before him and be held accountable. But when I stand one day, Jesus is gonna stand up and says, I took, I died in his place. His sin was laid on me, Father. And I've been dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne on Christ the solid rock, I stand. My only righteousness is his righteousness. But God doesn't keep track of our sins. Agape love isn't like that. It keeps no record of wrongs. That's why it says in Hebrews 10, God says, your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now what's that mean? Does God have Alzheimer's? (laughs) Does he have a bad memory? No, he's chosen not to keep a record of our sins. How dare we turn around then and keep a record of other people's sins and wrongdoings? That's a great way to ruin your marriage. It's a great way to ruin a friendship, and if you're a parent, it's a great way to destroy your son or your daughter. When you said, how many times have I told you? Instead of sitting down with them in love and walking them through something that they're just not quite getting right. Those of you who are married, I would encourage you to, to answer this question. How, how much of your marriage is good? I think most of you would say, you know, a lot, 75, maybe 80%, it's just that 20%, she really ticks me off, or he really irritates me, and it's getting worse. Here's what we tend to do, forget about the 80%, and we just focus on this 20%. And if you want to be miserable in your marriage, just do that. If you want to be happy, thank God for the 80%, we're all in process. And then practice agape love on the other 20%. Now, if you said, oh, really, Phil, to be honest with you, like... 80% of my marriage is a disaster, then you need to go get some help, all right? Because there is help available right here at this church. Because every marriage can be healed. It only takes one person to ruin it. But any marriage can be healed. It just starts with somebody saying, I'm going to die to myself and I'm going to start loving in this way. Things will begin to change. Let's move on. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth you're taking notes, we'll throw this up on the screen. Love never delights in exposing the sin in others. One translation says it this way, love is never glad when others go wrong. I'm so glad he messed up because I, I hate that guy. I'm so glad he got fired. <laughs> love isn't like that. In fact, Proverbs 24 warns us, don't rejoice when your enemy falls and don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. Why is that? Because God isn't like that. He loves, he's long suffering, he forgives, he doesn't delight in evil. He isn't glad when others mess up, he wants everyone to do well and to follow him. Love isn't glad when others mess up, instead it rejoices with the truth. Now this doesn't mean that love winks at sin, looks the other way. If you truly love someone, you won't rejoice when they fall, but neither will you excuse their sin. It actually says also in Proverbs, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. There is a time to, in love, sit down with someone and and help them when they're going astray, but confronting is different than exposing. Confronting is done in private. Exposing is a public thing. Agape love never delights in exposing the sin of others. Instead, look at how this ends. Love always protects, and Paul here gives us, as he wraps this up, four things that love does. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, I know a lot of you love the NIV, but I'm sorry, the New American Standard rules in my heart here. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I just like that. I just like it but we'll stick with the text. Always protects, bears all things, okay? Can be translated covers, the Greek here. Cover so as to protect. This Greek word was used of a roof that wouldn't leak when the storm hit like yesterday when it was pouring rain. If your roof was bearing all things, it was keeping the rain out. Of ice bearing the weight but not giving away when you walked across it. Love will bear the blows and attacks of other people. It isn't offended when acts of kindness aren't noticed or appreciated at all. First Peter says uh, this. It says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of of sins. Love always covers the weaknesses of others. It's never glad when others mess up. It doesn't talk about it, therefore. Love is slow to expose. It, it knows how to keep quiet about other people's sins and faults. It shields. It protects. This is one of the most beautiful things about a husband and wife who love each other. They don't expose one another's faults. I love the verse in Proverbs 31 talking about the godly woman. It says, the heart of her husband trusts in her, for she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. I have that kind of wife. She knows me. (laughs) She knows my weakest points, my biggest sins, and she protects me, she covers me, she shields me, she's praying for me tonight. This is the way God's love is. It covers, covers. It always protects, it bears all things. It means that you bear with someone, (laughs) even when they're being a bear. Pardon the, pardon the humor there, or the bad humor. Some, love simply says, I got you covered. So before I wrap this up, turn to the person on your right or left and say, I got you covered. Do it right now. I said I got you covered, not where are we going to go to eat afterwards. Okay. <laughs> Next, it always trusts, believes all things. Love bears all things believes all things, love believes the best about others. Agape love is optimistic, it isn't cynical or suspicious, it gives people the benefit of the doubt. It believes the best as long as it is possible to do so. Next, it always hopes. Love hopes all things, bears all things, believes all things hopes all things. Love never loses hope because it is hopelessly optimistic. It never gives up. It refuses to take failure as final. You know, I I know he messed up again, but I just so believe God's gonna answer my prayers, and I so believe he's gonna come around. And I've seen this kind of love. Recently in a family where one of the daughters, who was a grown woman, was just being awful to her mother and father, and I thought, just like, just tell that kid, you know, hey, when you're ready to talk civil... Come back to us. But no, they just kept listening and love because they loved their daughter so much. They believed at some point she was gonna come around, and recently she did. But I was watching, it like, how can you do that? Because they had this kind of love for their daughter. It was hopelessly op- optimistic. You know, I, I have here a little card. Years ago I graduated from San Jose State University in the Bay Area, 1975. Ever since then, how many years is that? I don't know, too many to count. I'm old. They find me. I moved. I don't send them a change of address. All of a sudden, I get another, Hi, remember us, San Jose State? We're raising money for such and such a building, you know. They think that one of these days I'm going to write them a check because I went to San Jose State. And it was such a great time in my life. I'm just longing. I think about them every day. And, and, you know, (laughs) and I go, How did you find me? (laughs) I'm not even in the state again. I I moved for the eighth time because they're hopelessly optimistic. They think one day I'm gonna just go down there and weep in the campus, remember my awesome music classes and my business classes and the ones I almost barely made it through. Anyway, they're never gonna get a dime from me, but they are hopelessly optimistic. This is a good illustration of this kind of love. (laughs) It it never loses hope. (laughs) Lastly, it always perseveres, endures all things, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things this is a military term it means love never runs away it was used of standing in the midst of a fight we are making our stand right here and we are going to endure love endures all things it doesn't give ground it stands strong it bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never fails this kind of love Agape love that is patient and kind and never rude, etc. and bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This kind of love, agape love, never fails. It lasts forever. One last illustration before we stand for prayer. I just love, these words are so power-packed. The word fails here, which says love never fails. If you study that word in its original language, it had in its background the picture of a flower. My mom was a florist. She's with the Lord now, but when I started dating my wife, helped me score some pretty nice flowers to sweep her off her feet. Anyway, she'd make anything I wanted, but the problem with roses, it's my favorite flowers a rose, is after a while, they begin to wither, and the petals fall off. And this is the picture here. God's love never withers. The petals never fall off. Unlike a rose whose beauty only lasts forever, God's love can't be extinguished, God's Love's flower petals never fall off, they never fade. This kind of love never loses its fragrance. This kind of love never dies. It cannot be killed because it comes from God himself. It comes from God and is the nature of God. And so, as we end here, I just ask you, does this kind of love describe your life? Are you characterized by this kind of love? Is this what you are known for in your family? Is this what you're known for at work, at school, wherever it might be? Is this what you're all about? Is this kind of love the key, as it's on my cell phone screen, the key that opens the door to everything you do? If if you cut yourself, would you bleed this kind of love? Only you can answer that question. I think most of us would say, I've got a long way to go. But I have good news for you you have a God who lives in you. If you know Jesus tonight, if you don't, come to know him tonight. Give your life to him tonight. He will come into your life and you'll have the power to begin to actually love and live this way. I had a guy ask me a while back one day, he just came, he said, hey, hey, can I, I think mean, he was working on a paper for school or something. Hey, what's your definition of a mature believer? And I, he caught me off guard. And I, I think he was expecting like, give me five things. Well, you know, he reads the Bible daily, prays for an hour on his knees, you know. And I, I blurted out to him, agape love. He goes, what else? I go, agape love, that's it. The mark of a mature Jesus follower isn't how fat your head is when it comes to Bible knowledge, although we need to know the scriptures. It's how full of love your heart is for God and for other people. Paul actually told Timothy, his protege, when he was training him, the goal of our instruction is love. (laughs) Not that we have a bunch of fat heads stuffed with Bible knowledge, but that we have hearts full of this kind of love. It's the sign of a mature Christian, a loving husband, an excellent wife, a godly son or daughter, and it's the sign of a mature church. As we wrap up, maybe you're thinking, man, Phil, come on, I do not love like this. I can't love like this. And if that's you, you're right, you can't. But don't despair because there's hope for you. Where are you gonna get this kind of love? I've told you about 18 times already because it's kind of the only message I really have. Christ in you, the hope of glory, a crucified life, it's all about him. Let me just give you five really fast things, really fast. First of all, realize you can't. If you think, I'm going to go out of here, I'm going to love like this. You'll make it about 10 minutes until somebody ticks you off or pulls in front of you like happened to me the other day and flipped me off because he just didn't like the way I was driving. I do not even think I did anything, but he thought I did. I didn't do it back. Thank you, Jesus. thought about it, though. That's a sin. Anyway, <laughs> but realize you can't. What did Jesus say in John 15? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, that's step one. You know, J. Oswald Sanders, great New Zealander, pastor, man of God, I read where he said this once, for one month he read 1 Corinthians 13 with his wife every day for a month. And he said at first, I thought what a beautiful chapter. At the end of the month he said what an awful chapter, as in awfully hard. And he was a man of God. He just read it and read it and read it. Oh, what a beautiful, I'll read that at the next wedding I do. At the end, it was like, wow, I can't do this. That's step one. Step two, realize he can. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Third, confess all known sin. The beginning of being filled with God's spirit is getting the garbage out of your heart and out of your life. And if you can't do that on your own before the Lord gets some help, let a brother or sister sit down with you, confess your sins to them and, and get these things out of your heart that are weighing you down and the bitterness that is eating you alive and confess it all. And then let God fill you. That's the fourth thing. Be filled with the spirit. Walk in his spirit. Because Galatians five says, if we walk in the spirit, we will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. And then the last thing is just start loving people. It's that simple, gang, it's that simple. But many of us, we get stuck maybe at the confession part or we think we can handle it okay or to walk in the spirit requires getting some stuff out of our life that maybe we've been holding on to and we don't quite get to the loving part. But it's really that simple when we bow the knee to Jesus Christ. You and I have to make a choice to love. Here at Sunset, at Jesus Church, I just exhort you to love like this and you will not be able to keep people away from this place. People won't be able to, to, to stay away because they'll say, I just feel so loved the moment I walk in. I know that's what's on Jose's heart. I know that's what's on your leader's hearts. But there's already too many people here for just the leaders to love. So you're part of it. Because love is the key to everything. I hope you agree, amen? Would you stand with me for prayer? Just set your Bible down and coffee or whatever. And I want to um, pray over you right now. And I'm gonna read a prayer as I pray this over you from... Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Would you just maybe take your hands and open them up and just, you don't have to lift them in the air, just hold them open in front of you. And let me pray this prayer over you and over Sunset a Jesus Church. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you will never fully understand it. Then you will be filled with the fullness of life and power that comes from God." And Lord, that is my prayer for your people here, that their roots would go down deep into the soil of your love, that as they die a deeper death, there'd be more resurrection life, that marriages would become more beautiful, families would become more and more a reflection of what Jesus can do, that sons and daughters will be loved in this way, and that people will not be able to stay away from this place because the fragrance of Jesus has filled it. To that end, Lord, would you do your work and help us to be people who respond. In Jesus' name, amen.